Thanks so much, everybody, for coming out here today. I do appreciate it. Um, I want to tell you a story. About a few years ago, I was in at the University of Michigan Law Library, and it's a, it's like a, it's a it's a well, like three stories down. You can look down, and I was trying to get my Mac on. There was this girl, woman, and I was talking to her, and I had a coin. I was flipping it around. I can do this coin trick. I can flip the coin, and I know whether it's going to be heads or tails. I can do it right now, Daniel. I'm not going to do it for you right now, but I can do it. And I was flipping it, and uh, she couldn't believe it every time. 10 in a row, 20 in a row. How do you do it? 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 You don't want to know. How do you do it? I, I'm going to tell you. I was up the street at a falafel stand, and I was waiting in line to get my falafel. And I saw this dude behind me, and he looked at me, and I looked at him. And I said, do I know you? He said, yeah, you know me. I'm a god. I said, what? He said, yeah, I'm a god. I came here for, to talk to you. Really? He said, yeah, you can do anything. I'm your guardian spirit, but you got to trust in me. You got to believe in me. I thought it was kind of nonsense. And he said, you can do anything you want, but know this. The higher power you use, the more belief you have to have. If you, tr if you do something crazy, you better believe crazy. All right? So I started doing this coin trick. And I'm doing a coin trick right now for you, darling. And she said, I said, do you believe? She said, I believe. I said, look. I am going to get on the end of this railing and jump three stories. I'm going to alight in a fireball and float around right now. Do you believe me? Do you believe? All right. I got to the end of the railing. So I'm going to count to three. One. Do you believe me? Two. Welcome to Snap Judgment. My name is Glenn Washington. Today, we're going to rock the story. And one of the things I wanted to talk to you all today about was, <laughs> I was, was kidding about Ira Glass. But a lot of storytellers, uh, we have been raised in Ira. Let me, in fact, I can, I'll tell you a brief Ira story. I'm gonna, this is a, a complete detour. This is a, this is a real Ira story. Um, start, a lot of my stories start in Michigan. I was, I, I was, uh, with a, a woman who we, we were having lots of fights. We're gonna figure out if our relationship's gonna work. And uh, we're gonna, gonna go for a ride. We're gonna go to Canada. And um, we're driving out of town. We fight a lot. We're driving out of town. And this new show came on by this guy named Ira Glass. And I was listening to the show. I was transfixed. And she, she said, turn that off. You're just annoying me. You're just trying to annoy me. I said, no, darling, I really, really like this. No, turn it off. Turn it off. And um, I said, stop the car. And um, we broke up. <laughs> so I, when, I, when I say that um, uh, we're going to go through some things that take a different narrative tack than 
um, than um, this American lifestyle. Understand, I do it with love because um, this brother saved me. <laughs> so, to get back to my story, um, what, I, what I wanted to do today was give you permission and understanding of story structure because what we're all trying to do, and there's so many, I can see so many sto um, amazing storytellers in the room, so I'm hoping we get time to um, have a real conversation later on. But this whole, but this process, this, um, this, this talk today is about how to put uh, a soul, love, and heart into your storytelling. And what the, the, the basic premise is this, is that storytelling is magic. And when, you're, when you can transport someone, you can get in someone else's head, you can see something through someone else's eyes, that's magic. And what happens, especially in a public media context, too often is that we stop our own selves from casting our own spell. We break the spell too often. People who are amazing storytellers break their own spell. Now, let's get into this a little bit. I wanna, um, get into some of the tools and things, but because a lot of you all are amazing in this, and, and so if you have anything along the way, if you want to stop me, just stop me. But one of the things that has been really important in, in, um, in how radio, audio is evolving is the idea of not just putting um, music in the background, but how to use sound effectively and creatively. We have something that we, we call essentially dual narration. We're trying very, very hard to tell the story on an acoustic level at the same time a, sto a storyteller is speaking. And what this does is what, what's happening right now is that all kinds of storytelling medium are being compressed. Where um, certain shows have 15 to 20 minutes to tell a story, we generally shoot for around seven minutes. And if you're going to do that, the, it, it, you have to get a lot of information around off in a very, very short period of time. So let me play for you right now a piece. And the sound design on here is what I really want you to pay attention to. Um, because it's, it's, again, it's not just music. It's not just Foley. It's, it's something else. OK, so my dear friend was pregnant. Everybody was excited, but then the doctor said, something's wrong. They put her on bed rest, and for my friend, this was not easy, but she was going to do everything she could. They told her not to move, so she didn't move. But then she started having pain, started having these pains, and her water broke. Too early. Way too early. Months too early baby had to come out premature mother and child were whisked to a neonatal intensive unit and only parents were allowed to visit I was not a parent but the daddy was on the other side of the world trying to find a plane and my friend said I need someone here so when the nurse asked me are you the daddy, are you the daddy? I told her yeah I'm the daddy and the nurse, she told me to scrub my hands with soap and the special brush before she took me to the incubator. And she looked like a little baby bird 
hooked to tubes and wires and monitors. It's all so tiny. My friend, the child's mother, took my hand. I told her to go to sleep. Go on to sleep. Are you sure? Go to sleep. She finally left, and the nurses told me that what the baby, what a tiny baby under two pounds really needs is skin-on-skin contact. What can I do? They told me to strip. They set up a tent, an anti-contamination tent, and sent me wearing nothing but my boxer shorts inside. The monitors kept beeping and beeping, rhythmic. The nurse picked up this little baby and her little mouth opened. The monitors went crazy, alarms, red flashing, shrill, loud. I have never been more scared. And she put that tiny baby on my chest and all those noisy monitors, all that crazy calamity. Calm down. Calm down to a heartbeat. Her heartbeat. Skin to skin. She felt so soft. She looked so beautiful. I thought I had lied when I told the nurses she was mine. I looked down and saw her and knew whatever the biology right then. For that moment, she was mine. And you know what? When I see her now, riding her bike with that big old horsey laugh, and I ask, who's your favorite? I don't care who she says. I don't care because I already know. Today. On- um, the guy who did the sound design on that was Pat Masidi Miller. And I think it's, it's, it, it gives you kind of an idea. What he was doing there was not just the Foley thing, not just the music, and using, um, actually, instead of punctuating uh, stories with sound, he punctuated the stories with silence. And it's something that I think, it's, it's re- these are really, um, there's a billion ways to do it. You see um, Jad right now essentially um, making scientific concepts come alive through sound. And um, it's, fan- it's fantastic, but um, here, you, you, the, there's a, what, he's, what he's trying to do is, is create, is keep that forward momentum going. The forward momentum of the story is actually where the magic happens. What we do too often in public media is break it. And we break it in a bunch of different ways. One of our favorite ways to break it is to bring on an expert. We gotta have the expert opinion. Just when you start telling the story, just when I'm inside, just when the person who is living the experience is telling me what happened to that person, right when they're at the thing, here's Professor so-and-so. I don't wanna hear from the good professor. Um, I don't wanna hear from the industry lobbyist. I don't want to hear from the doctor, the whatever it is. Often, um, and, I, and I think what a lot of this is, is us trusting our storytellers. And that if, uh, I know a lot of us deal in, a, in news making, but these people are, who are telling the stories are news just because you put them on the show. Uh, and I think I, I'm really happy to see a lot of NPR um, uh, uh, storytelling evolving toward this. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling that you don't necessarily have to have the pointy heads to 
do a 15 minute news piece. It's fantastic. And I know a lot of you in the room are responsible for that. Um, but trusting the storyteller. And now, having said that, it's still, well, I want to play you a piece because it's uh, the art of it's, we, we want this to sound as if it is coming from some, this is what people say, this is how people act. And we know that it's still an artifice, that the, the, uh, there's a powerful editing that goes into um, storytelling, and that editing hopefully is invisible. I want to play you a piece. This was done by, this was done actually by Anna Sussman. Let me play you this piece right quick. The method at that time was the gas chamber. I knew that at some point in my career, I would probably be faced with that task of executing somebody. Any person who takes on a warden's job, they better do it with the eyes wide open. You go into it understanding that this may be part of my job. And if I'm not willing to do this particular part of my job, then I shouldn't take the job in the first place. Edward Earl Johnson was the first execution that I actually presided over. He was an interesting guy. He had been convicted of uh, killing a town marshal about uh, three months after he graduated from high school. He came from a, a good family, had been raised in the church and stuff, and uh, shortly before the execution, the weekend before, we were having Sunday dinner. And um, my wife, she looked at me and she said, are you ready for this? I almost flippantly, nonchalantly said, hell, I've spent 20 years in my career being ready for this moment. You know, combat in Vietnam. And she said, I think you're going to find that those are two very different experiences. I said, well, maybe so. But look, it goes with the territory, and if I'm not willing to do it, I don't deserve the job, and I'm not going to lose any sleep over it. Most inmates, you know, on death row are going to tell you they're innocent, but usually when you get right down to it's time to do the deed, the inmate will come around. He may not just come right out and say, okay, I did it. They might say, uh, please apologize to the victim's family. Well, you know, you're not going to do that if you didn't do something. But in his case, at the point in time that I finished reading the death warrant, when it was time to ask him if he had any final words, he is strapped into the chair inside the gas chamber. I leaned down and I just kind of whispered to him and said, Edward, it's not important that anybody in this room hears you say, I'm guilty, I did it. But what is important is that you're at peace with your God before I have to give the order to do this. And um, I thought to myself at that moment, hey, that's pretty strong stuff. That's pretty good stuff. And that'll get his attention. He looked at me and said, Warden, I'm at peace with my God. How are you going to be with yours when you realize that I'm being murdered? I'm innocent. And those were his last words, I'm innocent. I told my wife, she met me outside. She said, how was it? I said, it was horrendous. 
It takes too long. It's potentially excruciatingly painful. We're supposed to be better than they are. I said, uh, if I never have to do it again, I won't be sorry. One's enough for me. I don't know how folks in Texas do it. And uh, we started walking back to the house. And I said, you know, while I was doing this, everybody else in Mississippi is asleep. And I've been busy doing their dirty work for them. We got to the house. I climbed in the shower. And I scrubbed and I scrubbed and I scrubbed because I felt dirty. Um, that piece, what's stunning, if, like, if you get a chance, listen to the whole thing. You actually have a warden admitting that he thinks he killed an innocent man. But, and it was done by Anna Sussman. When you hear a piece like that, and um, I've, heard, I've had several people tell me about this piece, like, you know, Glenn, that was a very, it was a fantastic piece. It's great that you got the guy to just speak off the cuff like that. And um, <laughs> um, what I'm lucky about is having Anna do the hard, amazingly hard work to make it sound like these were the words this guy said in this order. And that three minute piece that you just heard, there's over 120 different edits. And you all know how this is. Um, to when you really get into a piece and, and you, where you, you have to be faithful to the guy, person who's telling the story. We don't want to put words in his mouth and make him say something he didn't say. And we can all do that now, right? But to, but to put those things together and not have, again, what it does is um, it, when you construct a narrative in a certain way, you, you eliminate the need for the pointy head. And that's, I think, the real point of, of this type of storytelling. I don't want, he's got a great voice. He's a, he knows what he's talking about. He believes in his, what he's talking about. He's passionate about what he's speaking about. Don't break his spell by having someone else come over him. If you, if you can, no, oftentimes um, you can, if you want a, uh, an expert, make sure that expert is, um, is telling a story himself. One of the things I, I haven't said um, explicitly, but we, Everyone in this room knows this already, is that the language that your heart hears is one of narrative. We all, we, we are, uh, there's, a, there's a genetic uh, predisposition that we have to narrative. We want, I can prove that later on, but just want to get that out there right now. And so, and what we're aiming at, in order to, to really make these stories sing, we're aiming at the heart. We're aiming directly at it, and we're speaking in, ter in, a, in, a mo in motive terms from one heart to another. As smart as anything else on the media, you've got to be that. But um, uh, I, I guess the, 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 the takeaway here is it was a few years back before I started the show, and I was watching um, Crossfire, and our, our, this show, and then we had two, two jackasses yelling at each other over some nonsense. Um, kind of like a debate I just saw. And, um, and when, you, when you watch this, at the end of it, I don't feel compelled to do anything besides bathe. Um, but when someone tells you a story that, uh, that has an uh, um, emotive impact, it's amazing. You feel like at the end of it, I want to do something. I want to feel something. I want to I go somewhere. I want to change things. And what's, what's so great about um, some of the stories that we're starting to get in, especially from outside producers, is that 
the, 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 um, we can tell any type of story. I can tell a story about a, 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 uh, a cabaret transsexual in San Francisco, have that story play in Mississippi, and it's all right. As long as the humanity of the person is established, they're telling their own story, I, I don't have to get on a soapbox and say, you know, this is what we think. These narratives speak for themselves. And um, we're gonna get into this a little bit later on in this presentation as well. But um, to understand where we're going with these things, this is the current model of, of, uh, of uh, public media storytelling. It goes like this. Narrative, analysis, narrative, analysis, narrative, analysis. What I'm suggesting is that you get rid of the analysis. Get rid of it. And, make sh and have your storytellers take you where they want to go without explicitly telling you where they want, want you to be. This is gonna come out at the end of our discussion, but the reason why you wanna do this is because we're talking about magic. We create, we put meaning on every single thing that we hear. And if I tell you what the meaning is, I've robbed you of your ability to put your own on it. Storytelling, real good storytelling, is living vicariously to someone else. If I tell you that, if I tell you what, this is, this is what to think now. Here is the public radio ribbon at the end of the story. Here is the moral of the story. I've taken the story from you and never take anybody's story away. Um, now. Oh, we got some meat stuff I want y'all to hear. I can't wait. Um, I, I, this, this is uh, another storytelling thing. I, 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 um, this, uh, the, when you're looking, when you're aiming at someone, when you're trying to hit right here, one of the things that we, again, when, we get, when you get the, uh, the pointy heads out of the way, and you let the person really tell their story. What you're looking for oftentimes is a reveal on the reveal. You want the, uh, if you get lucky and if you construct it right and the person knows what they're doing, either the editor of the story or the storyteller themselves, what you're looking for is a turn where they say to themselves, this is where my world changed, this is how I'm different now, this is where my, uh, things, look, things are, are, are not the way they once were. And you see this, people say it in different ways. And I wanna play for you three. One of my favorite, um, I know some of you have heard this story, but um, a, a woman, uh, Rebecca Hertz, fantastic storyteller, and she used to work for us. And she told a story about this man that she loved and how she met him. It was, um, and how he resembled Thor. And it was this, it's this br brilliant piece. And she, uh, she was always, from a small child, she's loved Thor. Thor was her uh, idol, Thor, this, the cartoon Thor. And when she saw this person personified, she lost her mind. Um, and this is just a small piece from, but I want you, but, but, um, but watch for the turn, watch for the inward reveal, and you're gonna see it here twice, actually. Um, the only superhero I've ever 
I wish I could play the whole thing for you, but I cannot. He tucks his hair into the helmet and like wipes the mist off of his beard and puts the helmet on and he's like, let's go for a ride. So I get on the back of this dirt bike and I grab him around the waist and the bike is so loud and powerful and we ride around the desert and we do these jumps into mud piles and it splatters mud everywhere and then we get to the base of this really steep rock formation and he points to the top of it and I'm like, what? What do you... No. No. And he just starts laughing and rides up it. This vertical rock face, okay, with me behind him. And as we're going up, I'm so terrified. And I'm so aroused at the same time. And we get to the top, and it's totally quiet. And I think to myself, This is how Lois Lane felt when Superman flew her over Metropolis for the first time. And I'm like, okay, I found him. I found my man. I found Thor. Two months later, Thor dumps me. He and his kids had just spent the weekend with me. I thought we were doing well. I don't understand it. One question keeps running through my head over and over. What did I do wrong? I never get an answer from him. It's just over. I'm hurt. I stop eating. I stop sleeping. But eventually, I realize I have to go on with my life. So I go to South America. I go to Japan. I move on. And then a few months later, I'm on this climbing website looking at all the bulletins. And I see Thor's name. And I click on it. And I find out he's been injured. I'm talking to Thor for the first time since he broke up with me. It was crazy. So time just disappeared, you know? I mean, hours would disappear, days would just disappear. Weeks, you know, months, you know. Oh my God, like it's been months. I've been sitting here in this, you know, ICU for, you know, two months. And then the next hospital for a month and a half. Thor's living at his mother's house now. They've modified the place to accommodate his wheelchair and they've added a room for his round the clock caregiver because Thor is now paralyzed from the neck down. I didn't know that you knew, and I wanted to let you know before too much time went by, too. He was cliff diving into a river when it happened. So, I mean, I dove off a 15-foot rock, maybe taller, like maybe 15-foot rock. I did a a a one-and-a-half forward flip into, like, a perfect dive 
and the water was only four feet deep. Why? 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 I did it because I didn't know it was freaking shallow. You know, I had no idea it was shallow. I've been diving my entire life. I did it because I was showing off. There was a ton of people there. You know, I was like, screw it, I'll do something cool and give these guys a show. And I hooked a one and a half flip. And that was it. Damn. Most likely he'll never walk again. I mean, I severely traumatized my, my vertebrae. That's as close as you can come since I bring your spinal cord. How are you alive? I don't. Well, people survive. It's unbelievable. I mean, it's amazing. What's more amazing to me is that I can still be functioning and normal with nine tenths of my body incapacitated. And I know I'm not supposed to feel this, and I'm certainly not supposed to say it out loud, but I'm profoundly grateful that he dumped me before this happened. I'm profoundly grateful that he dumped me before this happened. This, she's being so honest with herself, and we feel that honesty right there. It's like, whoa! This is, I, I still, when I, I've heard this thing a billion times. I, it still hits me, um, and sometimes, and and when you're interviewing, you know, like uh, Rebecca's obviously a storyteller, but sometimes when you're interviewing someone, you wait for it, you wait for that that reveal, and when you hear it. Um, we're this is what she's doing there is answering the real question that we all have and we're afraid to say, and it's it's, it's really taking us inside herself. It's that um, I'm calling it a turn, but it's it's um, it's it's this inward look um, that you can get, and it's you can do it in different ways. I want to show you a video of a different way. This guy, his name is Ice Life. And um, he has a different type of turn. Um, let me show you this here. Get ice up on the screen. Not only did I graduate from my peach can stilts, I also graduated from my naive view on race. By the time I was 12 years old, I was quite clear that in this country, white meant better. Not only did I graduate from my naive view on race, so did my homies at school. They went from thinking it was cool that I had a white grandma to teasing me for it. That didn't bother me. What did bother me, though, was commentary from two homies in my hood, Kevin and Brandon. Brandon joined the Nation of Islam, and he was 19 when I was 12, so we all thought he was like a super grown-up, you know? He'd stand booming from the corner like it was a podium. All white people are devils. They're all racist. They enslaved black people. They enslaved the whole world. It would drive me crazy. I'd argue with him, going on and on about how that wasn't true. My grandmother was proof. She was a white woman married to a black man and had black children. How could she be racist? Here came Cool Kev. Blood. Just because she be around black people don't mean she ain't racist. Black people don't like black people. So you know white folks don't. I felt defeated on the issue, but not about my grandma. I knew she wasn't racist, and she loved me very much. The summer that I was 14 years old, I went and spent the summer with my brother in Fresno, and my sisters, they flew down to San Diego to spend time with our uncle. 
When I got back home, I landed at the airport. My mama said, Ice, where you want to go? What did I say? Grandma's house. Off we went. We got there, and right away, Grandma started setting up the Scrabble board. She started asking me all the questions that Grandma's asked, you know. How was your trip? How's your brother? Did you eat? Like I'm not going to eat. <laughs> Did you talk to your sisters while you were gone? No, but Connie wrote me a letter. She said they're getting dark tans down there from all the sun. And, and then my world changed forever. My grandmother reached across the table and touched my hand. She said, oh, no, they're going to come back looking like little niggers. I fell down inside. Then I died a little. I can't tell you what happened next. I don't know if it was nighttime or daytime when we left. I regained consciousness in my bed, weeping, mourning. That's exactly what it felt like. The way it feels to mourn something you hold tight against the fabric of your being. The thing I was holding on to with all of my young might. The part of me that didn't want to live in a world where anyone, and surely not my grandmother, saw me as a nigger. Useless. A dumb fuck. For the years that grew into my teenage years, I imagine I saw my grandmother no more than a dozen times. We never talked about it. Did you see the time? Um, we could all tell stories, this, this, and that, but all of a sudden, bam, it's inside. And when he goes inside, we go inside with him. And I want to do it, show you one more time, uh, one more example, this brilliant storyteller. Um, See, I'm, I'm so excited. I'm at the best job in the world. The same way you hear about David Sedaris, you're going to hear about Ice. You're going to hear about this next storyteller. Her name is um, uh, Sonia Renee. She's stunning, fantastic. Just look, look. But, but, the, but here, she does the same. She does a different type of a turn. And this, I, I just think this makes story. This, this is, if you can get this somewhere, this, is, this makes your peace come alive. I'm sorry I can't play the whole thing, but just a little bit of Sonya is all you need. They let me forget. This, this is a piece about um, her relationship with her hair. And um, the, a, a black female sort of uh, walk through the generations and how uh, hair was important to her, how it was important to her mother, and, this, and how it acted as a, as, a, as a point of frustration between her and her mother. And um, this is what she does. That I wasn't beautiful. That is, until I took them off. And then like Cinderella, at the end of the ball, I was nine years old and on a bus headed to Woolslayer Elementary. And I promised myself I would never go back there. So I took him off less and less. To walk my dog, I grabbed the wig. To go to the grocery store, I grabbed a wig. 
I had lovers that knew me for years and never saw me without my wig. And even when I became a performance poet and started traveling the globe, sharing my poetry, I started an entire movement telling people how to unapologetically love their bodies. I did it all in my wig. Until one day, let's call it today, I woke up and realized I'd been living in a tiny prison of synthetic hair. <laughs> that the wigs had made me a liar. I was really just a little girl pretending to be a woman who actually loved herself. But some deep knowing in the center of my belly kept asking me, what would it be like if I let myself out of that prison? What would it look like if I told the truth to myself, to my world? I think it would look like this. that school bus and grab nine-year-old Sonia by the hand, walk her off of that bus and into womanhood with me, whispering, you have always been beautiful. It still makes it gets me, uh. and it's it's wonderful. Um, she's taking that that turn. Obviously, was a was a um, very literal one, and when she that reveal, should I say, she went really really literal with that. And this, I mean, I, I think this is what you're looking for when you want to make a story rock. You want to get to that point where when 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 she does that, you feel it. Now, my last the last what I want to do is um. Actually, let me think about this for a minute, because the point we're trying to make is that you don't need analysis at the end of a story in order to make it work. I don't need you to, if I tell you what the story is at the end, if I tell you the meaning of the story, that I'm robbing you of experience. One of the most amazing storytellers is this guy, his name is Noah St. John. He's 15 years old out of Berkeley. A real, a, a, a real talent, but you know when we're when we think of um, making media, we think about making the the huge story, the story that is big and weighty and it's going to change everything. And so often, the best way in order to have to have a story have impact is to go the other way, to make a story about minutia, about something granular. And this and and um, this next story here, he tells a story about his car.
When my mamas fight, they go on long car rides, come back, and I hear our car stay still. They come in, and Robin goes directly to the bedroom angry. Maria will sometimes make toast, pour water. I sit in my room quiet, listening like a radio antenna. My mamas drive a CRV. They bought it brand new. The car is big-boned practical. It is our car. I have been one with this CRV for so long now. We used to drive for miles out on the highway until I fell asleep. It has taken me to martial arts practice and school plays. This is the car that drove me to the gay pride parade where I skipped through the crowd throwing mini Oreos. This is the car I'll learn to drive in, the car I'll remember. Last Tuesday night, my mother Maria comes into the house with a weathered smile. My other mother, Robin, and I are sitting in the room. Maria asks us if we'll take a drive with her. So we all get in the car, our hearts thudding in offbeat unison. And as we drive, silence settles in. And I wonder, and then I know, this is it. And I didn't imagine it would end like this. I didn't imagine an ending at all, but if they were going to tell me about the divorce, what a way to do it. I sit in the back seat. I wonder when they'll say it, how they'll say it. I think about how my time will be split between them. I wonder what'll happen when they see each other afterwards. Will it feel like collisions? I don't want to meet a new girlfriend. I can't imagine anything but this. Its ending is unthinkable. My heart hurts at the thought of our last miles, these miles. Who will take the CRV? In the back seat, I think about how lucky we were to have had this family. Their 20 years of marriage, my 15 with them. I remember when Maria drove away one night without saying where, when Robin packed up her things one day and Maria ran outside to stop her from leaving. I remember when I came to them crying at the idea of separation. I remember when Robin came out sobbing. I remember when Maria whispers at Robin to be quiet and Robin yells louder. I feel these walls crumbling. I don't want this life to end. Maria starts to talk. I pinch my leg and look out the window. She tells me that our car, our CRV, is just 13 miles away from reaching 100,000 miles now. <laughs> I wonder if this is part of the divorce speech or just a distraction. <laughs> I feel angry, they should just say it. She tells me the reason we took this ride is so that we could all be there to reach 100,000 miles together. <laughs> as the people who matter in her life. Slowly, I come to the realization that this isn't a breakup ride. This is a stay together ride. We're in the car and we're driving on a Tuesday night and we're 99,987 miles in. We stop for onion rings and Sundays. Keep driving, 99,993 miles. Knicks, 99,996 miles, Elton John, when we get to 99,999 miles, we 
presence. There are too many moments when we are unbreakable. And in this moment, we are one family, constructing road as we go, burning bridges behind us, adding mileage like graceful aging, driving in our CRV towards moonlight. This brother, um, again, did he tell you at the end of the story what it meant? Was it about a damn CRV? And what's cool about it is, is again, we, I can play this, this thing anywhere. And, and without, um, it's not, the, cro it's not uh, the crossfire antagonism that's going along with it. This is one person's story talking about his family. And, um, and he delivers it. He's, it's not a soapbox. And, and that's the real deal there. Going to the heart of it. You can't argue with someone's personal narrative or their story. And, when he, and, and when, when he tells a story like that, it becomes your story. Those are some thoughts I had on storytelling, some rules. But um, I want to do one more because, you know, this, you got to. Um, the narrative analysis, narrative analysis sort of model. You've got to get rid of the exposition, get to the right or the heart of the story, and then shut up model, which, is, which I think is snap judgment. But um, at the same time, there's some people that they aren't following any model at all. And the next story I want to play for you, the last story I want to play for you is a guy, his name is Joshua Walters. I hope some of you have heard of him. But um, Joshua came to me with a story, and I looked at it on paper, and I said, this is the biggest bunch of crap I've ever seen. No, I, I can't do this. This is absurd. And um, our music director, Alex Mandel, they kind of went together, and they worked out a little something. And um, he breaks every single rule, but the story works. And um, it's, it's still stupid, but... Um, but it really, it really does work. And it's, uh, he, he does this routinely. So sometimes, let's take all the rules and throw them away. Did you know that you can get porn through Netflix. I learned this while hanging out with my grandmother, <laughs> Nana. A DVD came in the mail with a very unporn-like title. It was Robert Vincent in the library. <laughs> so there we are in the TV room, and in comes Pop, so here comes Dad, and now it's Dad and Nana, me, family time. So we put the DVD in the machine, and the movie starts. And the first title comes up. The title is 
Playboy Entertainment. And I say to them, I say, hey, hey. Hey, I think this is porn. <laughs> this is not porn, they say. We're not about to watch porn. We're not about to watch porn. We just got a nice movie from Netflix and we're just gonna watch it, okay? We're just gonna watch a nice movie together, okay? Just, just relax and watch the movie, okay? But the opening scene is a man in a fedora hat sharply dressed in a bar, and he approaches a beautiful buxom blonde in a velvet blue dress, and they're sitting there at the bar, and, and they're talking, and they're just talking a little too fast, and this is just too much, there's just too much quickness for a movie that this is just the first minute of the movie, and the dialogue is just going too fast, and, 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 and I just have a sneaking suspicion, I just say, I say, hey! Hey, I think this is porn. <laughs> this is not porn, they say. We're not watching porn. We just got a nice movie from Netflix. We're just gonna watch it. If you don't wanna watch it, you can, you can leave, but we're just gonna watch this movie, okay? But now the man in the fedora hat is getting closer to the woman at the bar, and it's become a close-up of their faces and the mouths and starting to get closer. I get this feeling in my stomach, this feeling that won't go away. Something terrible is about to happen, something terrible, and I say, hey, 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 Nana. Hey, Dad! Nana! Dad! Hey! Nana! Hey, Dad! Nana! Hey! 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 I think this is porn! <laughs> and they say, this is not porn. Will you stop all that ruckus? We're not about to watch porn. Okay? We're just trying to watch a nice movie here. We're just trying to watch a nice... And the next scene is money shot. Coin in the slot. Money shot. Cha-ching! 100, 100, zoom, focus. 100, 100, zoom, focus, focus, focus. And they're like, look what you've done! And they're mad at me, and their faces are red and angry, and they're angry at me and frustrated and embarrassed. And I've never seen Nana's face so angry, and Dad's face so angry. And they're over me, and they're angry, and they try to get the DVD out of the machine, and it won't come out. They try to get the DVD out of the machine, and it won't come out. And finally, they get it out, and they throw it to the floor, and they storm out of the room. They storm out of the room. <laughs> and that's how I learned you can get porn through Netflix. <laughs> Break all the rules. This makes no, it still makes no sense to me. But the story, if you, if you saw the story on paper, it's, just, it's, it's ridiculous. Um, uh, but, but break all the rules um, and tell, their, tell your heart stories. I want to open this up for discussion. I want, someone's got to say something, Danielle. <laughs>
Can you just tell us where these, where the live shows are done, and how how you created them? A little bit about that. Absolutely. Um, the live shows, which I hope we're going to be doing a new season that's going to be touring here soon. Um, the the um, we uh, sometimes every once in a while, Snap just gets on stage, and um, as you know, most of our stories are produced um, in kind of the typical radio manner. But um, when we do a live show, the storytellers have to come to rock it themselves to take over the whole thing. The guy here, the that the um, the the, the the secret juice to this, these live presentations is Alex Mandel, who is the uh, music director for them. This guy constructs a piece for every single story that is really made to amplify the humorous or emotional content of each piece. We get together with the storytellers, make that work. See, um, Snap Live is essentially the opposite of the moth. Um, the, well, what's a moth is fantastic. Moth is a great show. We love it. But the moth is like one person with a mic, no notes, no nothing, and they rock it. We basically try and throw the kitchen sink at it. And um, as far as um, soundscaping around it and other things, and the and there's storytellers who who really know how to work a microphone. Um, and um, so, I'm not sure if that's answering your question, but yeah, this is we're probably going to end up doing maybe one out of every five or six shows live. Um, I love the way Snap Judgment uses music. You've got a wide array of music, uh, and uh, you know you can watch the editing here, for instance, in this last piece where it just stops when you know you want to make a point, or in the Thor piece, which I've heard the whole thing, and it is a great piece, um, where she says, "And I was thinking in my head," and then the music kind of goes boom, oh, boom, oh, boom, oh, like music's thinking in her head. So I really love that, and I'm curious, maybe this is what you just uh, said here, Jonah is part of an answer, but where you get music rights, so, such, so much music, is it all original? Who's doing your music? Are you grabbing music? Are you stealing music? Where, why do you get to get on this shit? <laughs> um, the, the thing is this, um, for us, Obviously, music was really important to how we are thinking about these things. A typical this uh, a typical um, snap judgment episode uses about 120 different pieces of music, and so um, it's it's there's a second by second editing. Those those pieces themselves are blended and distorted and twisted. It's it, we really take we take it very very seriously, but um, because if we're playing on public media, there is a universal rights um, situation where we can use anything, but if we do a television show or uh, we do a live thing, we don't have that same thing. Or so even take yours and put it on your podcast or, or put it on your on the web, then you lose that FCC right. Apparently, um, we have not we've ha we haven't had any problems with the podcast thing, which says you know maybe we will maybe we'll get a cease and desist letter, but we can't absolutely cannot do it with um, anything that we're going to broadcast or, or charge for. The big deal there, I think, is actually the charging, which we can't. So right now, I can't charge for a Snap Judgment episode with all that music in it. It would be, and, and, and that's the big deal. Um, as far as the, like I said, here, Alex composes every single piece, so we have total rights to everything. Um, and that's how that works. Hey, uh, so first of all, I'm amazed you were able to make that much noise in the University of Michigan Law Library because it has such a strict, like, no noise at all policy. Uh, so I commend you for that because 
I'm always, uh, I have, I'm always itching to make a lot of noise in there. But anyway, um, it, it almost sounds like you're th this model of like more narration, less um, outside opinion or less uh, expert context. Um, you're talking about doing this, like you'd like to see this done more for on like the actual straight news programs, like um, all things considered, and like what people rely on for news um, when they listen to public radio. They're actually doing it. Um, to some extent, what, well, I guess what I'm what I'm really saying though is that if you have an expert opinion, or if you want to have some pointy head, you're obviously going to have experts. But make sure they're speaking in story. Make sure that when you construct your your own episode, that you're putting it in a narrative arc. You, you're telling stories that matter to people. And and if you're if you're working on a story that doesn't matter to someone, maybe you should worry about what you're doing. And that's the thing. We, we, we have so little time. People in here are so talented. You only want to be doing stuff that matters to someone. And the only way to really tell those stories is a narrative. Um, and and, and it, takes, it takes some thought and some foresight to be able to put new stories in a narrative context. But I think I, I just heard a piece about a month or two ago where they, they were talking to a woman who decided to, um, who was a minister, who decided to leave her church and, um, and do something else and go into a, um, be an atheist or something like this. And it was, it, it, it hit so many hot button issues of American society and it did so through her prism and her story. And I think that that, and that's news. And it had like 12 minutes on um, all things considered. I think it's fantastic when they do something like that. What's your, your experience with um, people tell, telling sort of nonlinear stories, nonlinear narratives, uh, either <coughs> not necessarily chronological, or maybe they're using soundscapes and, and soundings to weave a story out of that? Uh, have you seen many people uh, writing those kinds of stories? Is there much of, of an audience for something like that? Um, yeah, um, I think that there's audience for everything. Um, it wouldn't work for us. Uh, we really, really try to hit you with the beginning, middle, twist, and end or something like that to take you through a straight narrative. Now, you might go back in time a little bit and stuff like that, but generally it's a, it's a, we want to go straight narrative. Um, radio, I, um, it's hard. Um, you know, when we, we're all audio people, and you know, I listen to audio books all day, and, I, and, and, and that's great. I think it's very, very hard when you're in a car driving down the road when, when someone's playing a bunch of... Um, um, narrative games with you, which might be good if you have your full attention on it, that, that probably, that wouldn't work in another context. Um, and we, you know, I, I think we, it's a real experimental time because we have all these tools accessible to us. So I'm not saying we would never do certain things, but it's, I think it's difficult. Yeah, uh, when I, I was interested, I've heard a lot about the, I haven't gotten to see it yet, but the, the editorial process you guys work with, you, you workshop every piece and everyone's sort of involved in the mix. Um, I want to talk to you about that. Absolutely. Um, uh, let me just say this as well. As a storyteller, the best asset that I have is someone that tells me the truth about my pieces and I can tell the truth about theirs. The person who I go to first is, is my partner, Mark Ristich. Mark, and, and, and we were just talking about this, actually, Danielle. The, um, having someone who you can trust to, to critique your stuff and to take um, a hacksaw to it and, and, and not hurt your feelings, or you got to just get over that. Um, and, and sometimes Mark is the one, you know, it's my show. I can do what I want. But Mark would be like, hell no. 
fuck this. This is not going on. It sucks. And he and 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 that type of um, relationship with someone who I do respect, I trust as a storyteller. I don't take every edit, obviously, that he would give to me. But and it's a weekly show. We have to get stuff done. We can't be precious. But um, first of all, is having that person, you know, someone like that. If you don't have that person, really work hard to find someone and 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 open and put down all the ego enough to be able to hear what they're saying. Um, because you know, you give to a friend, you know, I kind of like it. Here's a couple things. Da, 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 da. That's not helping you. You need someone who's gonna get in, get all up in your ass, and 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 and, and help you and realize and, and take you to the next level. Now, as far as our process is concerned, um, essentially what happens right now is um, I want to hear a beginning, middle, and end of a story. We we are a very very small staff. Ira was talking last night about having forty thousand dollars to send people to Guatemala. We ain't got that. Um, uh, we, it ain't like that at Snap Judgment. So um, so I don't have. I, and so if you're working on a story that's not gonna work, that it, it hurts us. It, it hurts us our time. So I I want to. And we have to throw away a lot of pieces um, because they don't work. And we, we've had to stop. And 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 uh, stop whole episodes, and throw it out because it wasn't working, but, and and that sucks. That sucks for everybody. Um, but as far as um, so I want to hear beginning, middle, and end. So I don't think someone's going down a rabbit hole, but they might be. And sometimes you have to. I'll check in with that, that person a little bit later on and then make the final call. Do we proceed with this piece or not? Do I really think that the structure is evolving? And then we have a listen that's a group listen. And that thing, and that's hard. It's just hard, especially this, because, because it is a weekly show. Generally, if you write a book or something, you can write the book, give it three or four or five months to sit, get some criticism on it, and then go back to it. When you're doing a weekly show, you have, this, this is your baby. Someone's calling your baby ugly? You got an ugly baby. I don't like the way the baby looks. That's hard to take. It's really, really hard to take on a weekly basis. And you do have to, you know, just take it. Take it. And, and, and obviously it's part of the how you were criticizing the story, not the person, da, 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 speak respectfully, all that kind of stuff. It's still hard. And there's no way to get around it. Um, and what, what's cool about it, though, is being in Oakland, um, we just have we have a um, very crazy, hilarious, hardworking, very diverse staff, and what's been great about it is that because people are all coming from different perspectives, they've saved us. They've saved us. Um, this is not the way um, a Peruvian person would speak about his grandmother. Um, I don't like how this feels to me as a woman. I don't think that this is um, age-appropriate stuff for a little child. On a, on, a, on a Sunday afternoon because there's so many perspectives and everybody feels like they can pull the brakes and stop something. And, and, and um, yeah, I have to be the final editor, but everyone's got to get a voice. And, um, and that's, I mean, I can't tell you how many times having that diversity of staff, and this, even if it's a small staff, has saved us from a major mistake. And, um, and, and the, the interns feel empowered to say, uh-uh, this ain't gonna work. I, and I think that that, and, um, that other, and you see, you've just seen recently some media, media mistakes, I think that would have been solved by having an open process like that.
I wonder if you could take the thought further about how to apply your wonderful format and authenticity and not needing the expert and all that stuff. That's just like super advice, but if you could sort of transfer it to formats that have that um, that structure naturally, you know, the expert track, the analysis, all that kind of stuff. How do you do it with shows that that's the format they generally operate in? How do you subversively bring that in and change things. I think how you do it is you're deliberate. A, a lot of times people, the reason why they, they don't get to some places is because they don't know where they're going. The way to tell a narrative, the way to tell a story is to have a very, very good idea of what your end point is going to be. And if you do have a good in, uh, idea of where your end point is going to be, the experts, the, the, uh, the lobbyists, everything like that, can be fitted into part of a narrative arc. And, um, and, 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 it, and, and you, but, you, but what that means is the producers have got to think about this and think really, really hard early on and make sure that they're, that, that they're going that way. This is hard to do. This is, it's not easy. But um, but, to, but to just but to just um, I'm going to tell about something. It's not really where you, where you want to be. You want to say there. This gets into questions of bias, which um, uh, um, I'm biased. I'm very 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 biased. I'm not going to say what my biases are necessarily, but um, I think we 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 uh, recoil from telling truth oftentimes because we think it reveals a bias. And I guess what I'm saying is um, we need to get over that. It's, bias is not the problem. The problem is um, being, uh, whether or not you're being honest with your audience and they know where you're coming from. And if you, and if you have a pers uh, perspective that you're trying to get to, make sure they know this. And, and I think then that you can work on the narrative arts. Does it make, make any sense? Yeah. yeah, the narrative art thing is really key. Yeah, it, it's, just, it's just different when you have a story format where you need the three or four voices and you need the Ambien. Ambien's kind of like formulaic, you know, and that's, that's the way a certain show works. Yeah. So it, it's not where you just have the one voice like in Snap. And, and so you, you kind of have to alter it or take those, uh, that authenticity to kind of alter it for this other format. Well, I want to say I, I I use some examples here that were one voice, but I think you can you can do multiple voices, but you just all I guess what I'm really saying is just this make just put them in service of the story, whatever the story is. The story, the Bigfoots exist. I want five experts. Just tell me about how we get whatever it is. Do a little something with me. Could you tell us a little bit about how you work with the people who are not storytellers or not professional sources in any way? How do you guide them? You said that this kid we heard was, was pretty edited, like with the warden. But how do you coach them? How do you talk to them before the whole microphone situation? Um, a, a lot of you are really, really good at this. But, you know, the piece... Um, you have a, make a seven-minute piece, and you have oftentimes have seven hours of interview, of tape. Um, so it's like um, it's like uh, the way oh, this is a beautiful sculpture. How did you turn this rock into a beautiful sculpture? Well, I took out everything that didn't look like a penguin. And, it's, and the same thing here, and you're taking out a lot of crap. Um, and then you're getting it takes a while, oftentimes, especially for you know certain generations to get used to having a microphone in their f face, and it just means putting in the time. 
putting in the time and trying to, and hopefully the magic will happen. Now, because again, it's a weekly show, we, it's really bad to have a bunch of tape that you're not gonna be able to necessarily use. We do have to direct it, we do have to be careful. But um, it's sitting down with people and, and people who are not storytellers and understanding the arc beforehand. And then I guess it's waiting to see if it's going to, if the magic is gonna happen. You know, that whole, it's, it's, it's the oldest trick in the book. It really is. But we interview people, we ask them a question, they answer the question, and we wait. And often what happens then, when they want to fill that silence, <laughs> that's, I mean, it's, it's, sound, it, it's a journalism 101, but that really, really works. It really, really works. And oftentimes then what we do is we edit the uh, interviewer out of the piece and then reconstruct it that way. I wonder if you might want to talk a bit about story appreciation? Um, sort of, how do you find everyday people? You know, do you have any, any specific places you go to find people who can show how to develop, even if it's like an expert who can, you know, tell a story? You guys get a lot of like, pitches, or? We, we don't get enough, and that's just kind of what I wanted to do this. We don't get enough pitches. And um, because I think people don't quite yet understand our model yet. So I'm telling everybody, we don't get enough pitches. Um, how do we find people? This, this is really interesting, actually, because people then think of a good storyteller. This person's a great storyteller. How, why is that person a good storyteller? Um, most of the really, really good storytellers, like, say, Ira, for example, are amazing listeners. When they and and I, I think like in a crowded situation, the oftentimes the storyteller is the one going, huh, what happened? It happens all the time. We get stories at cocktail parties on the street or whatever. It just happens. Um, it happens in so many different. I can't in the bathroom. I don't like to talk to people in the bathroom, um, <laughs> but, but I got a story there one time. Um, <laughs> It happens in so many different ways, and I, I, it's, it's almost like um, you just have to have that uh, your antenna up all the time. Um, you, you, your mother's a witch. Tell me more about that. Um, I, I wish I could say more. I mean, obviously, we do the deliberate things, and which is this is what's which is cool. This is what's great, and this is where the opportunities are. <clears throat> right now. The big public media shows and the big magazines, New York Times, the Harper's, the whatever, the Atlantic Monthly, um, the, the, the big um, NPR and all that kind of stuff, they all get their stuff from the same circuit. You're going to see the same person from New York Times on Fresh Air or whatever. It's gonna, it's gonna go the, the, everything's going to come from that same sort of northeastern situation. We are lucky to be in, on the other side of the country and our storytelling and just our kind of um, vibe is coming from somewhere completely different. This is the person who I'm going to get as, as a storyteller is not going to be on Terry Gross necessarily. I hope later on they will be, but it's just not. That's not the the the, the feed. And I think that wh wherever you are, you pr you probably have a different milieu of um of artistic and narrative talent that is coming at you that might not be in that circuit either. We get a lot of our people, the best storytellers. In fact, um, let me see. I showed you Joshua, Sonia. Um, Noah St. John, that kid, the best storytellers for us, every one of those people came through the slam poetry movement. They were former slam poets. Now, if they can, it's, it's very rare that a poet can come through and then make the switch from poetry to narrative. But 
if they can. But coming through that slam poetry room, they have stage presence for days. And they can come up and rock a mic like nobody's business. And if they, if you, and a lot of them, they are creative. They they can make that narrative switch. So, so all of that's, that's funny. All of them, every single one of those people who had a, a long history. Even Noah St. John was a, a, a national uh, poetry slam champion. And um, and those stories, just, that's just not going to happen. That's not going to happen on um, on all things considered necessarily. I was actually wondering if you could speak more about that specific thing. I know you come from like a slam poetry background and using your voice to sort of break up the narrative and using it as a different radio voice as your voice as sound. And I don't know, just talk a little bit about that because you do that I think in a really fantastic way. Thank you. Um, my, I don't really have a very strong slam poetry background. I'm, I can get up there and crack wise. Um, <laughs> but um, Al Letchin does. He has a he has a he was actually on um, what is it Deaf Poetry Slam, Jam. Um, my my thing is more of an a, an acting situation, um, because uh, I do try to bring an acting. I'm acting out the stories. I'm act oftentimes acting out the voices, and a lot of that actually comes from this. We're a weekly show with a very very small staff. What happens is. Um, a uh, right before airtime, someone will come screaming, uh, the story's not working, we need a seven-minute story, uh, give me something quickly. <laughs> Thank you. Right, so I've got to think, I've got to try and do something that's going to be um, useful in a fairly short period of time. And, and frankly, the reason why a lot, a lot of those things happen is because for me to tell a story, it's a, it's a I don't want to say it's a cheaper fill, but it, I can. Um, we're we're trying to um, to 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 um, have have live stuff, have produce stuff, mix it. Um, for, when I tell a story, generally it's it's about making uh, putting everything in a, in a to glue everything together, to glue everything together thematically, and um, and so it's. Um, what am I I'm saying? I'm sorry, I'm so inarticulate about this. But what I'm trying to do is um, is act out all the various characters that I wish I could put in the booth with me, and um, and hit it that way. Uh, I'm a pretty lousy storyteller, so uh, forgive the dumb question. Um, but you mentioned before that that last video you showed, that guy broke all the rules, but. I don't know the rules. What rules did he break? I'm sorry. Um, he some, some, one of the rules is um, making some damn sense. He didn't make. He didn't. Um, he broke that rule. Um, what I'm saying. That story was not so much an exercise in narrative as it was an exercise in timing, um, and and timing actually and and music. I think you heard again the punctuations in that story did not come from the music itself. It came from the silences. And um, and this is something we really work work hard with to get that piece to work was a monster when we finally decided we were actually going to do it to to, con to compose around it and to uh, and to make sure that Josh Joshua could be Joshua and and do his thing because because he wasn't really telling a story per se he was talking about um, an incident is not a story uh, at, at least in, in most of the times of. of the way we do things, but he just brought a scene to life in a way that we thought was interesting and um, and funny, and we went with it. As far as uh, the rules, you know, <laughs> he, um, <laughs> he, he, he's just babbling. 
great. Um, you talked a lot about the term, you know, that being like a pivotal moment, obviously, in a story. And we saw great examples in these videos. I'm wondering with audio, what are some of the most effective, like you mentioned silence, what are some of the most effective uh, tools that you guys use or that you recommend for establishing that turn in the story? Like what are what's really effective? were in fact audio pieces. I want to show you the video because we're in this room right now. But the um, you, you get um, the um, there's so many different ways to do this um, on audio. And um, one of the ways I really really like you, when people are thinking about something or they're about to make a reveal, oftentimes you'll hear <sighs> or you'll or there or there's some kind of they'll do something like that. And that sometimes all you have to do is turn up the gain on your on your machine. Uh, again, a stupid trick, but it really is effective. Um, getting something when you, that lets you know that they're thinking and they're like, "Am I going to say this?" Da -da 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 -da. Um, and it, you can do it um, off, oftentimes, of course, musically as well. But all that stuff. Uh, our, our our punctuation is oftentimes silence. We're waiting for it, and we want to. And we want to. We want to lead you to the point where you're on the edge, and you and we. That's when we get out. Give them a minute, and the um, spacing is everything. Um, hopefully, you can't hear a lot of the edits that go into spacing here. But getting the given, um, someone makes a point, and you have a t you have time to take it in and breathe. Make another point, time to take it in and breathe. That's really important to people. Just really quick, how did Sonia Renee uh, do her piece when at the moment she takes off her wig? How was that translated to just audio? It wasn't. We just had, it. Just we just played the piece, we turned up the audience, went crazy clapping, we just turned that up and did it. Oh wow. Yeah. Do you have any advice about how to not overdo it? Like, uh, I really like Foley and Music, and I think it's great and it's really inspiring. But I'm worried about the cheese factor. Mm. And maybe the answer is just practice more. <laughs> you know, I, I do think it is. I think just certain different pieces lend themselves to different things. And having, like, you know, that whole group process, editing process. Sometimes it's like, ah, we've gone too far this time. Y'all got to knock this stuff out. Um, it happens all the time. We, we just think this, this, one's not going, this one's not going far. It's not going far enough. Um, it's hard. It's really hard to make a, um, the soundscape work. But, again, we're trying to tell, like, these stories. This is for the new generation. We're telling them in, like, seven minutes. This is about half the time of, like I say, a This American Life piece. That the, the, the um, soundscaping is not just there for fun. You, we're getting information, tone, timing, everything. There's so much that happens in there that we're, we're trying to convey. You're, you're really thinking of it as another type of narrator. And I think that the big deal there is it's not just Foley. It's not just sound. Uh, sound it's not just music. If you were going to tell a story, if, if you turned off the storyteller, would you get a sense of where the story was going just from the soundscaping? Which is something we actually do. Just turn off the actual story for a little bit and see how this sounds. Um, you 
business of gotcha and we don't really if, if we think we actually stop people sometimes like do you really want to do this or if the person that you're talking about is is going to be adversely affected by it we'll often we'll change a name or or something like that which we which we really the, the big thing we actually draw a line with is kids we don't want a bunch of revelations from kids on the show um but um we and we and we we're like a lot of the artists who come things. Like, are you sure you want to do this? It's it's because if they don't, we, there's tons of stories out there. We don't want to. We just don't want to screw anybody over. It's, it's it's just unnecessary. There's so much, so many people who want to tell their stories, who who have great stories. You know, I, we're, this is this ain't this. It's not like that. People really won't, do want to work with us if they, if they get that far. You were talking about how in here sort of has this very traditional sort of narrative analysis in their news, and um, how like that that you are sort of hearing the sort of other model coming in without that. And I feel like what I hear and what I find myself ending up doing is there are these straight pieces on the news that are narrative analysis, and then there are the sort of other stories that are getting on the news programs, but they're sort of they are postcards. They are you know they are just voices, but they're and they can have music and sound. But there's sort of this other thing. And are you sort of seeing, are you hearing that coming into the news stories themselves? Like, where are you hearing that? Um, not enough. And, and you're right. You don't want to ghettoize this type of storytelling. You want to, um, I want to put this front and center. And the big deal, actually, is, is this. Um, this is what happens. This is my, my, my biggest pet peeve and what actually I used to shake my fist at the radio about was when I would hear someone, oftentimes from a lower socioeconomic class or, or something like that he would say something um uh, you know i went to the lottery today and then you have it translated by a um a, a public radio voice uh this uh just this gentleman went to the lottery um this tra that translation thing i think is largely going away i think that we can understand our own america and um, and when we have to, whoever's speaking, we can understand it. Just give it a second. We can give. We can understand it. Um, and that that whole stuff um, that, that and 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 um, let people speak for themselves. Um, I think it's actually. I, I think that that aspect of it is actually starting to catch on. Not all stories. Not all reporters are are being as conscientious as they can about it. But I think it's it it is a turning point going on right now. I'm sorry. I, I'm probably going way over time. What, what's what's? Oh, I'm so sorry. Um, we can, um, <laughs> um, this is gonna be it has to be. I, I can talk up here later on. This will be my last one though. All right. Thanks. Um, so just just going back to the rules really quickly. I know that Rob Rosenthal suggests that there should be like a moment of reflection at the end, which seems to maybe be at odds with kind of your philosophy. Yeah. Do you think that's so? And I mean, if you think that there needs to be some sort of reflection. How do you walk that sort of tightrope between just putting something out there and being like, this is what this means, you know? Yeah, I mean, okay, yeah, this is it. Last question. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I'm at odds with that. And um, do, I mean, obviously, experiment with everything in your own storytelling. 
I think that it is more difficult to actually construct, construct a story where you lead a horse to water, but you do not make it drink. I think that what my, I guess what I'm, what I'm trying to say is, yes, it's, I need you to construct your narrative so that it does lead me to ask a question or it does lead me to put myself in the position of the person who went through this experience. All that is true. I just don't want you to come back and say, and take my, and take the, uh, and, and interpret this story for me, that you're you're robbing me of the magic that you you've already cast, and um, <laughs> it it re there's there is something biochemical physical about this. When someone tells you what the story means, you don't think about what it means anymore. You don't you don't you don't process it your own way, and you want I want to leave someone not with a, a with a with a bow, but I want to leave them thinking with a thought, and when they do that, they make it their own. Thank you very, very much.